0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Formula for Success with me David Coulthard, and of course
1: Mr Eddie Jordan. Great pleasure. Being with you David is just like like heaven. (laughs) The insincerity of that is ridiculous. Well I'm glad I hope that insincerity is reflected and our listeners can understand that that is insincere so uh, at least you've twigged it.
0: (laughs) And that may well explain why, uh, for these these episodes, we, you've refused to be in the same room as me. You know, I, I really think that I want to be, I want to be in the same room. I want to be able to smell you. I want to be able to almost, you know,
1: taste EJ in the room. David, you tried that once before. You brought me to share a room with you in Baku, which we will talk about in the future. I did spend a night with this man in the same bed and uh, more about that later, perhaps, David. We will bring it up uh, at some point, <laughs> maybe around the Baku Grand Prix. Uh, I think that is very appropriate because it's actually a good, fun
0: story. Um, you were amazing, by the way. Uh, so for our <laughs> listeners, remember... you Not as good as you. Oh, well, thank you, EJ. Our Appreciation Society will continue. Well, remember, you can get in touch with me and Eddie ffs at whisper.tv or all across social media at f1 for success. Now Eddie it's the US Masters beginning uh, today in Augusta and I know you are a big golfing fan and you've got lots of golfing mates. Anyone that we could get on the show at some point?
1: Well there was one of the show that I'm going to do and I was going to talk about somebody that I I grew up with uh, Dublin Six. When I was growing up there was a lot of people trying to get out of Ireland. trying to get out of Ireland for that case, but they were they were mad keen on sport. Paul McGinley was one, Padraig Harrington was another. Paul, once upon a time, in a, in a, a complete moment of madness, he uh, I asked him, you know, Paul, I'd love to caddy for you at some stage, and whatever reason, there was an opportunity, and we went to play in the BMW, the German Masters in Munich. So I had um, the yardage chart, and I was really well prepared. I wanted to know as much as I could, uh, and Paul was really great with me, and um, we made the cut. When I say we, Paul laughs when I say we, because I always believed that I was part of it. But, you know, golfers like to think it's them, and, of course, the caddy always think it's we. Um, so Paul had a great round. I think he shot seventy or 67 uh, that day and put us in contention. We were about four off the lead going into the last day, and so I sat him down as I would do to any of the drivers or anyone of you who would be my driver. And I sat him down and I said, Paul, have you thought about this? What do you think we need to do to to win this? And he talked about, "Well, well, I've got to play well. And I said, no, 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 no. If we shoot nine under, we can win this. Uh, And that only means that we birdie every second hole. But the first criteria is we must not drop a shot. Do you understand? So Paul is not the longest hitter. So we had to plan certain things. So in other words, can he get up in two to this par five? Or does he lay up and take the sensible shot with a a decent, we say, 80, 90-yard shot into the pin and, and sink the putt? So he was so clued in. We arrived on the 12th or left the 12th hole, six under par. So we were on target for what we'd set out. It didn't actually unfold exactly completely at the end. But anyway, the (laughs) fact is that he made the top three. He qualified for the World Cup. He finished... Very unlucky. He was beaten by Michael Campbell, a New Zealander, in the final. And, uh, but he did make the final of the World Cup. He's an amazing guy. And as a result of those things, he became the captain of the Ryder Cup in Glen Eagles. He brought me to Glen Eagles with my band, um, The Robbers, which is Eddie and The Robbers, as David will have told you last week. Um, but anyway, The Robbers were playing there every week. But his main job was there was this young uh, French player called Victor Dubosson. And um, he was kind of a bit of a loner and he was into his motor racing, but no one actually knew how to make conversation with him. He was very much his own man. And he asked me, could I, if you like, shadow him and be there for him and hang out with him and and, and go to each and every one of his games? And uh, I did. And believe it or not, he was the star of the weekend. He won every single game. Prince Albert wanted to meet him, who was there, and Prince Albert gave him a lift back in the plane. So everyone was happy. McGinley had won for Europe. Duboson was amazing. I was overjoyed. And so uh, everyone was spot on. And um, that's my little story about uh, Paul McGinley, who's a, a sensational man. Well,
0: it'd be good if you could get him to tell his side of the story because, you know, with with the EJ... EJ-isms and and age, sometimes your stories are embellished, you know, you've really put yourself there as being, you know, front and centre, influencing the success, where I'd be curious to know what his side of the story is. Um, Can I tell you a brief, a brief little golfing story to name drop? Please do. Thank you. I was going to anyway. So back in the McLaren days, Mika and I, uh, we were part of the team sponsorship with Hugo Boss. And they were big in golf and they were partnered with Bernard Langer and Seve Ballesteros. So ahead of the the German Open, which must have been about the same time as the uh, German Grand Prix, Mika and I went and uh, we played a four ball with um, Seve and Bernhard. And I'm not much of a golfer, you know, I've spent all my time going around racetracks. Mika's is okay. Bernhard was, as you can imagine, perfectly polite and, you know, used it as a training round. Seve made me feel talented. The ball zigzagged its way down the fairway and eventually found the pin. And uh, he was just having a shocker, but he was entertaining and, and engaging and, and, and just such a wonderfully warm man who uh, he probably, you know, was probably less painful going around with a couple of Grand Prix drivers than maybe if he was doing, doing it with corporate clients or whatever, or that's what I'm going to tell myself. But um, yeah, he, he didn't play
1: particularly well that day for such a legend. Did you Did you ever come across Seve? We were sponsored by Peugeot and they used to run the Spanish Open and um, the head, the people, the actually family of the Peugeots were mad keen about golf. So I played with Seve six, seven times and you're absolutely right. He had that unbelievable ability to... Go 18 holes without actually seeing a fairway. He was in every bush and every tree stump and everything. And yet he'd get around in 68 and I couldn't work all in. Where did those shots go to? But he was remarkable. That's what Sevi was like. He had that magic, absolute magic.
0: Yeah, he was an incredible man. I remember when he was being honoured at the BBC Sports Personality after he'd passed, he was being honoured by a Spanish golfer who I can't remember his name right now, but the, the whole arena were just you know, silent during the honouring and then standing ovation for the man. So uh, incredible, incredible legacy he left behind.
1: Um, Sergio Garcia, I think it was the guy's name you're looking for. There you go.
0: Well done, EJ. Um, it's funny how you never remember you owe me money, but you always remember...
1: I never remember racing drivers, but I remember golfers and <laughs> yeah. footballers.
0: Yeah, I, that, that, maybe you were in the wrong sport. It's
1: a habit I got myself into.
0: I wanted to really delve a little bit more, EJ, into our early memories of, of Grand Prix racing, because I never actually went to a Formula One race until I was in the support Race Championship. So I raced in Opel Lotus, which was like the second tier uh, championship back in the, the 1990, well, 1990 exactly. And uh, it was, I don't know where the first European Grand Prix was at that particular time, to show how good my memory is, but that was the first time I was at a Grand Prix weekend Did you ever go to a Grand Prix as a as a young boy or a spectator, or was it the same for you when you were running your Formula Three thousand team or your Formula Three team? Was that the first
1: time you were at a Grand Prix? Oh, I think I might get arrested if I was to tell you a little bit about uh, my first time. Well, please do. Um, I went to uh, Silverstone, and I think there was about. seven of us in a van, a uh, paint van, and it was all, so no one could see how many were there. And uh, we dug our way in, slept in the back of the van. Uh, we had good cutters, and we cut the wire of the the circuit um, so as we were able to climb under the wire and get in. And I remember this, Stuart because, get down off the hoardings, get down off the hoardings, and they tried to get it. We were on the hoardings at Cop's Corner. I had the best view ever. Uh, I was there on the hoarding, and that was my first time. I went to Silverstone, and I completely caught the bug there, and uh, it never dissipated. It just uh, grew. I, I felt such an exciting thing. I mean, I m- remember Jody Schechter. I think he was in a wolf car. There are memories, I think, like what you have, uh I wasn't brought up in the sport. Formula One, unlike what Scotland was, because I had such an array of great talent—Jimmy um, Clark, of course, Jackie Stewart, many, many others. Um, whereas Ireland had no one. We all revered and loved John Watson for what he did, but he was from the north of Ireland, and at that stage, the north and the south it was very much a big divide. So, nevertheless, the respect for John was immense, and that's why I went to see. I wanted to see him. Uh, and that's where I came across people like Jacques Lafitte and Jabouille and people like that. And sadly, some of them are, are leaving us. And I, I saw that uh, Jean-Pierre Jabouille died recently and he was my team boss when we were running with the Peugeot engine and very good guy and sad to see him leave us. When you mentioned John Watson there, great racing driver, of course, uh, great
0: broadcaster um, after he retired. But it makes me think when you mention as the divide was, you know, Southern Ireland and and Northern Ireland, it reminds me of a quote from uh, Nelson Mandela, where he, he said that sports has the power to bring people together and it can connect generations and connect people in a way that politicians can never do. And and I think that is summed up with just what you said there. Sport does transcend religion and all the other things that we end up fighting about as human beings. And uh, it, it's uh, we're, we're very privileged to have had our, our careers in sport. Um, do at this point, I'd like to uh, delve into what's, what's sort of irritating you at this time. I always like when you go off on one, it can be anything, it can be the world of politics, it can be, you know.
1: Well, it has, there, there are things that are, that, that are that, uh, for sure irritating me to do with trust and it's to do with honour, some integrity. And I'm at a loss to understand. And this was brought forward to me by the understanding the current Formula One cars are about 33 35% heavier than they were in our day, David. And it's mainly to do with batteries and mainly to do with this, that, and the other. And I just think that generally governments and the powers of whoever are influencing these governments, to have us going down the road uh, of uh, total electric cars by the year 2000 and whatever it is, 35 or 30, 40, it keeps changing. These governments must understand that what they're asking to be done to the manufacturers is impossible. They cannot possibly get the materials and the metals out of the ground or find the mines that they need to get to build the batteries in themselves. So first of all, That is a misnomer. It's absolutely wrong. The governments are putting pressure on manufacturers. The manufacturers are trying to build cars and being supported financially by the governments when they all know that there is no way that it's sustainable. It's just not possible. And what makes me irritated is that we are spending a fortune, and I will make a little bit of a a prophecy here, David, just like we say I've done in the past looking into my crystal ball. I'm saying to you, I maybe have well gone past off, uh, I'll be underground by this stage, but you certainly won't be. But my, my guess is that we will never see the day that we're all going in electric cars. We will never see, because it's not possible. What I hope you'll be able to see is smaller, lighter cars, greener cars, with different types of usable fuels, which we will make ourselves, and we will be able to use them. Uh, That's my high horse at the moment. I just wish governments were more honest with the people, more honest with the manufacturer, and more honest with us.
0: Well, look, while, while you were chatting there, and it's, I, I tend to agree with you, you know, I've just got—if I can believe—the uh, the internet se- search It says there's 1.4 billion cars in the world. Most of those are in Asia. Single digit is the is the current percentage of electric cars uh, in in the world. And my family business is transport. We have a truck company that started in 1916. You you know, if you're limited by weight, by axle weight on the roads, which is how trucks are, are regulated. You, the amount of batteries required to move a large tonnage of of goods and products around would just mean that you were having to have more trucks on the road to get the same amount of pallets around because the the weight the weight thing is just going to be an issue. So I think hydrogen is is definitely a big part of our future. I know that uh, the Bamford family, Sir Anthony Bamford, you a friend of yours, um, they are investing heavily in in hydrogen for the future for their GCB plant machinery because, you know, they they're, they can't run an electric when they're running 12 hour shifts or however many hours they actually operate. All of this sensible sort of debate and conversation makes me think that maybe you should run, run for a, a seat, whether it's in UK government or back in local Irish politics, because uh, people would listen to you. You know, you're a
1: well-known man and you seem to have uh, your feet on the ground in this. So David, you're just trying to get rid of me off this podcast and you you can't do it that quickly. You can't get me set up somewhere else. (laughs) All right, EJ, so
0: earlier we talked about some of our firsts in Formula 1. And to round off this week's episode, the producers would like us to answer some questions. And if you can, it's got to be in a fairly quick-fire style. So it's all about some of our lasts. So I'm going to go first and talk about the last F1 driver that I actually spoke to, which would have been Max Verstappen and Landon Norris, because I travelled back to, to Monaco with them. What about yourself?
1: Maybe they were at the same time. One was Martin Donnelly, and the other one was Johnny Herbert, uh, both ex-Jordan guys. And I've remained very close with those kind of guys for a long time. They were all called the Rat Pack. Do you remember the Rat Pack? The Rat Pack was made up of Mark Blondell, Donnelly, Herbert, Perry McCarthy. The steak And um, Damon Hill. And, and Martin Brundle. Brundle was far too clever. He, he, he was on the outside of that, but he was part of it. Uh, you're right, Marty was there. But there was a great bunch of lads, and they used to have great Christmas parties, affectionately known as, as the Rat Pack. And um, that's why I was talking to them about the future, see what we're going to do to uh, have a bit of crack. Okay uh, next
0: question up is the last celebrity you spoke to. Now you've got many more celebrity friends than I have. Um, so uh, if you're a football fan, um, I was talking with uh, Michelle Salgado, the uh, former Spanish World Cup player and Real Madrid footballer, uh, he's uh, living in living out in the Middle East, he's got his own academy there and he's a big big Formula One fan so clearly uh, he connects with uh, Fernando and uh, Carlos when he comes to the Grand Prix but I had a good old crack with him so you're going to top that easily EG, who was your last celebrity?
1: Well I'm not sure, it's not a question of topping, it's people that you know and you, you remember what happened but last night um, I was at a rugby game, uh, rugby is quite important in an Irish person's mind at the moment but this was separate this was a varsity game between Stellenbosch and Pretoria. And uh, Francois Pinar, who runs it, was there. And I was there as his guest. And I suppose uh, when you mentioned Mandela, um, that was kind of the words when uh, he appeared in Ellis Stadium when South Africa won the World Cup with a good contingent of black players. And that was something that they hadn't seen for a while. And Mandela was there, dressed in his springbok Jersey, which was always considered to, to have been an apartheid thing. So I think Francois Pinard was a great, great, great man and great leader of a team. But he also was very clued into what was going on with Mandela. And uh, full marks to Francois. I loved being with him last night.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Next one up is last concert you attended. And you cannot say you're one of your own gigs because I know you're playing most most nights down in south africa when you're there uh i'll i'll fire away with the last concert i went to was to see a uh english performer called james arthur um which maybe many of our listeners might be familiar with and I'm, I'm doing the nostalgic thing later in the year i'm going to see elton john uh and i think i'm booked in to see uh coldplay as well i'm not quite sure where that is but uh anyway um so that'll be my my concerts uh past and and future what about yourself
1: well, um, I've done a number of gigs with a couple of people here and there's um, a guy called Just Ginger and uh, Ard Matthews, a local guy here, sings a song called Sugar Man, which I think is just an amazing song. Uh, like you say, I'm, I've got some plans when I go back. Uh, Dublin will be on fire on the 5th, 6th and 7th of May for Bruce Springsteen. Um, and I'm actually due to play on the 6th. Uh, in your country, I'm playing at Tom Hunter's birthday party with none other than Jim Kerr and the boys from Simple Minds. So that takes some topping, don't you think, DC?
0: That That is very impressive. Big fan of Simple Minds. Let's hope they don't uh, forget about you uh, and then they'll wonder who you are when you turn up there. You better inform people what... <laughs> anyway. It was one of their big hits, wasn't it? Don't you forget about me or something like that. I think you stick to the moderation. Yeah, yeah, I will do. Okay, last film that you watched. Um, I'm not sure if I've... Watched a film film recently. Uh, oh, maybe maybe Top Gun. Yeah, I went
1: to the cinema to see that. That was brilliant, actually. Yeah, now I remember it. Go about yourself. Um, well, the one that they're all talking about, which I have to say leaves me cold, I didn't like it at all. It was the um, Banshee, isn't it? The Banshees of Finnish Frey. So, yes, I did go to see that. Actually, funny enough, I went to see that with Paul McGinley and we, we kind of said, what is all this about? This is so... So different or so bad that it'll probably win a Bafta. And what do you think it did? It won <laughs> what a- every Bafta. So it <laughs> just shows you what we know about cinema.
0: <laughs> well, I, I guess cinema is a like music, like any art form. It's down to the eye of the beholder. And clearly, it it didn't ring your bell. Well, the the final question from uh, our very patient producers is: When was the last time we annoyed somebody else? And I, you know, I don't want to appear uh, uh, that I look through rose-coloured spectacles all the time. But I, I don't really remember the last time I annoyed anyone else other than maybe my my ex, which is understandable. But in terms of having an argument or somebody shouting at me, I, I can't remember. I'm sure EJ was probably last night for you.
1: I'd have to ask Marie because she ignores me, so maybe that doesn't come into the consideration. Um, I, I love a rock. I love a row. I love... Um, Disorder. I've got to have it. You know, if I can't have friction every day in my life, I feel I'm losing part of my day. Um, but I try and do it in a kind of a jovial way. Uh, I'm sure I annoy the tits off everybody. And um, But, you know, that's it. I'm not really going to change at this hour in my life, despite. Been promising that I would do and will do, but I'm probably never going to do that. Um, but I don't usually have fights, and people often say, "Surely, with the things you say, you must have had a few smacks in your life." And to, I can't recall ever getting beaten up, uh, except by uh, a guy called Russell Spencer's friend uh, in a race. Uh, in Sicily when I wouldn't change, told him the engine was fine and I certainly wasn't going to put a new engine in there and one of his pals turned around and gave me a smack. So that was the only time in my life that I can remember having had a smack.
0: Okay, I only ever got punched once and it was probably when I was 15 at uh, secondary school in Kirkcubri, Kirkcubri Academy in the southwest of Scotland. And the the local school bully had uh, obviously decided he'd run out of people to punch. So I knew he was coming for me and he walked up to me very calmly. I stood there with my arms by my side because I'd never been a fighter. He punched me and then he turned and walked off. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, that, that wasn't quite as bad as I was expecting. Thankfully, he didn't go for my, for my nose. Would have been an easy target because I do have uh, quite a large nose. But when I'm looking, looking at my screen here, EJ, you've actually got a reasonable sized nose. So I think if I was going to
1: punch you, I'd aim for the nose. David, you have, you have an ability to forget things so quickly. And we've already (laughs) mentioned earlier on in the show how you kept the helmet on because I saw punches being thrown at your face by one of the great Michael Schumacher, but he never actually got to you, did he? Because he was jumped upon by Sean Todd.
0: So moving on, uh, coming back to your celebrity friend, uh, Paul McGinley, did you actually reach out to him? I forgot to ask you to reach out to him. Did you? And uh, uh, Can you check and see if he sent you a message?
1: Well, Paul is great. Before he left, he dropped us back a note and um, I just hope we have it here that you can listen to it.
2: Well, Eddie, we go back a long, long, long way, Uh, way back uh, before you had a Formula One team, even you were just starting out. Uh, We met in the K-Club, I was still an amateur back then, boy. that's a long time ago, back in the early 1990s, Michael Smurf was opening the K-Club, and boy, we've had some great times together, that's for sure, Uh, fun as well as professionally too, and you know, we've we've ridden a great wave together, and uh, there's a lot of stories, (laughs) a lot of stories, that's for sure. Um, you know, you can me in the BMW over and went over in, uh, Munich, BMW's headquarters there. And boy, oh boy, that was fun. That was fun. We did great that week and I qualified for the world match play and you raking the bunker on 18 and everybody waiting for you. And then you totally oblivious that, uh, in fact, you had about 10,000 people watching you rake the bunker because all play was held up by you raking the bunker and doing such a professional job. And anyway, that was, uh. That was a lot of fun. When you get out of the bunker, totally oblivious, everybody stood up and cheered you. Uh, it was fun. I went on a hole of putt then and qualified for the world match play, which was on about a month later, which, uh, I nearly won. I got to the final and lost, but that was a good time. I mean, ride a cup as well too. You know, you, Eddie and the robbers were a big part of that, keeping everybody happy down in the, down in the village, uh, all the, all the punters. That was a lot of fun. I know that was a, uh, resonated. And then my biggest win in Valorama, staying with you and, uh, having you in my ear every morning. how could I go wrong? And uh, yeah, won our third championship. So we go back a long way, Eddie. I just love you to bits. You're the best. And uh, keep well. And uh, I'm looking forward to the podcast.
0: Well, what a great message. The sincerity. He actually makes you seem like quite a nice, sane and rational individual. Don't be fooled. I'm not. I know. I know you're not. (laughs) It must just be when you're away from motor racing that you become this
1: sort of calm and kind individual uh, I think calm is not a word that gets used very often but what I like to do is uh, I like to have uh, electric situations so in other words there's always something happening or something gelling whether it be music or sport or golf or whatever it is. but business I, I, I like business I just like living man this just this is great I mean I didn't think I was going to enjoy this podcast I wasn't even sure uh, that I, I I would convince myself to do it but DC, you've made my day. I hate giving you compliments because I really, really dislike you and um, I'd prefer to be doing something else with somebody else. But anyway, I'm lumbered with you and despite you, I'm still enjoying this.
0: Well, that's another show in the books, Eddie. So I think it's time to uh, thank everyone for listening and do keep in touch, FFS at whisper.tv and at F1 for success. And do subscribe and please do tell your friends. Uh, Eddie, tell a few of your celebrity friends as well, and uh, look forward to talking to you in the next episode. It's been a pleasure, David. Almost sincere. Thanks, EJ. <laughs>